Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hi, it's Meghna Chakrabarty here today with a special drop in your OnPoint podcast feed. This one is from the archives. On Thursday night, Alabama carried out the planned execution of condemned inmate Kenneth Eugene Smith. He'd been accused and convicted of the 1988 murder of Elizabeth Dorlene Sennett. Smith had been paid $1,000 for the murder by Sennett's husband, Reverend Charles Sennett Sr. Just prior to his execution on Thursday night, Smith's final words included, Tonight, Alabama caused humanity to take a step backward. Mike Sennett, Elizabeth Dorlene Sennett's son, remembered his murdered mother in a statement, saying that the family was not celebrating Smith's execution, but that, quote, We're glad this day is over. My mother got her justice tonight, end quote. Smith was executed on Thursday night via nitrogen hypoxia, a highly controversial method that causes asphyxiation by forcing an individual to inhale lethally high concentrations of nitrogen through a gas mask. It was Alabama's second attempt at successfully executing Smith. In November of 2022, the state botched its first attempt via lethal injection. Advocates also called 2022 the year of botched executions due to the high number of failed attempts at state penitentiaries. So in January of 2023, we did an episode examining the reasons behind those failures. Dee Smith was one of the voices on that episode. She's Kenneth Eugene Smith's wife, and she witnessed Thursday night's execution and the botched attempt in 2022. So today, we're bringing this archive episode back to you and the questions it raises about what exactly constitutes justice for the worst kinds of crime and how to achieve it. We said our goodbyes and, you know, hugged. and We hoped it wasn't our last, but we expected it to be our last. Dee Smith is married to Kenneth Eugene Smith, a prisoner in Alabama. Kenneth Eugene Smith was found guilty of carrying out a murder for hire in 1988. He has been on death row for the last 30-plus years. The 57-year-old was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection at the William C. Holman Correctional Facility at 6 p.m. on November 17, 2022. For Dee, it was the longest and hardest day of her life. I was really trying not to think about losing him, you know, because I knew that the hardest part was yet to come. I knew at that point, you know, like, once we got to that point of actually being there to witness, it was, you know, I didn't know how I was going to hold it together. I mean, he's my best friend. Dee visited Smith for hours that day at the prison. They shared his last meal together, fish and chips, and even talked on the phone right before he was brought to the execution chamber later that evening. 
Dee and other family members were due to be picked up by the prison staff and brought to the witness room for the execution. But the call never came. They just waited and waited and waited. You know, that's all I could think about was them killing him without us being there, him being alone. It wasn't until after the fact that we found out what really happened. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In 1989, Kenneth Eugene Smith was convicted in the murder-for-hire killing of Elizabeth Sennett. Reverend Charles Sennett was deep in debt and wanted to collect his wife's life insurance. He hired Smith and a friend, John Forrest Parker. They were each paid $1,000 to kill Elizabeth. Smith was 22 years old at the time and a father of four. He accepted the job. On March 18, 1988, Smith and Parker staged a robbery inside Elizabeth Sennett's home. They beat and stabbed the 45-year-old woman to death. At trial, Smith admitted to being an active participant in the planning and carrying out of the robbery, but he denied beating or stabbing Elizabeth. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Smith's conviction, though, was overturned in 1992. He was retried and convicted again in 1996. But in that trial, the jury recommended a life sentence in an 11 to 1 vote. However, the judge overrode that recommendation and put Smith back on death row. His co-conspirator, John Forrest Parker, was executed in 2010. And Reverend Charles Sennett, the man who ordered the hit on his wife, he killed himself less than a week after her murder. Kenneth Eugene Smith has been awaiting execution for more than 30 years. And it was in that time when he met Dee. They were introduced by a mutual friend and became pen pals six years ago. Yeah, I was like just finding the other, my other half, you know? Like, I think even then it was just like, we just knew. I mean, it sounds crazy, but my heart knew like he was the one. They spoke on the phone almost every day. A couple of years ago, Dee moved from the Midwest to Alabama to be closer to the prison where Smith is incarcerated. And in December of 2021, they got married. Dee knew Smith was on death row, but she says she wanted to be with him for as long as she could. Through our relationship, you know, from the beginning, we've always tried to hold on to hope. We've always tried to live in the present, you know, and um, we don't want that joy to be taken away, the good memories, you know, and that's, we've always strived for that. Smith was scheduled to die on November 17th, 2022. At 8 p.m., he was taken to the execution chamber. You know, he was strapped down to a gurney, you know, and they kind of just left him there, you know, not knowing. Um, all he could think about was, okay, any minute now they're going to come in and do the IV. I'm going to die. I got to be there, you know, got to be strong for my family, you know, sitting there consciously waiting for his own death. 
waiting because earlier that same evening, the United States 11th Circuit Court of Appeals had stayed Smith's execution. But moments later, the United States Supreme Court vacated the stay 6 to 3. So by 10 p.m., Smith's legal options were gone, and procedures for the lethal injection began. They just come in and start poking and prodding, you know, using them as a human pincushion, you know, poke around, look for a suitable vein, you know. In his arms, in his feet, they got one into one of his arms, but they were having a hard time getting the second one in. And they attempted to insert needles into his neck. And, you know, and then that's when they finally ended up ending it. You know, and that was during 11.30 at midnight when they called it, saying they didn't have enough time to proceed with the execution. Specifically, Alabama Department of Corrections Commissioner John Hamm said, quote, At about 11.21, we decided we would not be able to finish that protocol before the midnight hour when the death warrant expired, end quote. Though the execution had failed, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey said in a statement, quote, Some three decades ago, a promise was made to the victim's family that justice would be served. Although that justice could not be carried out tonight because of last-minute legal attempts to delay or cancel the execution, attempting it was the right thing to do, end quote. Smith was returned to his cell. Dee had no idea the execution had been botched until she spoke with him later that night. At one point, he had even told them, like, you're not in the vein. And the guy's like, yes, you are. And, I mean, they were hitting muscle. And, I mean, it was it was a guess. They, they had no idea what they were doing. I'm sorry, but an hour to put an IV in, you go into the hospital, you're not going to sit there and let somebody poke and prod at you for an hour to put an IV in. I mean, that's not going to happen. Nobody in their right mind's going to do that. Smith's execution wasn't the first in Alabama to go wrong. In fact, his legal team had argued that he should be sentenced to life in prison precisely because the state had recently botched two other executions via lethal injection. Could have been prevented. They knew that there was issues. You know, we tried to tell them. We went to the courts. We said, there's these problems. This has happened two times already. Even though they botched those executions, they didn't stop to fix the issues. You know, they rushed and they proceeded to take my husband's life. You know, their only concern was he was going to die and they were going to make sure it happened by any means not necessary. We reached out to the Alabama Department of Corrections and the governor's office for comment. Neither responded. However, here's the state attorney general, Steve Marshall, at a press conference following Smith's failed execution. What occurred on November 17th was a travesty. It was a travesty of justice not for Kenny Smith, the twice convicted murderer who was scheduled to be executed that day, but it was for Elizabeth Sennett and for the members of her family. 35 years. That's how long Elizabeth Sennett's family waited for justice to occur. 35 long years. 
The Alabama governor's office has since suspended all executions while the Department of Corrections completes a, quote, top-to-bottom review of the state's execution procedures. That review is ongoing. Kenny, uh, Kenneth Eugene Smith remains on death row. Now, botched executions are not new. In fact, there were so many last year that 2022 has been called by some as the year of botched executions. However, what may be new is the fact that even in light of failed executions, a majority of Americans continue to support the death penalty, approximately 60 percent, according to recent surveys. However, that gets complicated based on how you ask the question and with the knowledge that most Americans also acknowledge that execution attempts can go wrong, that innocent people may face the death penalty, and the racial disparities in who is given the death sentence. So it's that conflict that we're trying to understand today, especially in places such as Alabama and other states, because they are turning to a different means of execution now, lethal gas. Well, Elizabeth Brunig has reported on all of this. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and some of her recent articles include A History of Violence, Why Does Alabama Keep Botching Executions, and Alabama Makes Plans to Gas Its Prisoners. We have links to both of those at onpointradio.org. Elizabeth, welcome to On Point. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, just... You know, we we told the specific story of Kenneth Eugene Smith, but uh, how uh, common have botched executions become inside of Alabama and in other states? Well, in Alabama, the last three executions that they have attempted consecutively have all been botched. Um, But the the week that Kenny Smith was set to be executed, November 17th, 2022, uh, that very week, there were several other individuals scheduled for execution, three, I believe, in the United States. And a couple of those executions, and all three of those um, were completed successfully, meaning they did kill the prisoners. in those two of three of those cases, two out of three of those cases, um, there there was difficulty setting a line. Setting an IV line seems to be something that lethal injection teams all over the United States struggle with. There have been botched executions before. One was in Alabama involving uh, Doyle Lee Ham, uh, where authorities attempted to set a line for hours and failed and had eventually, it was revealed, pierced his bladder even in that process. Mm. So... This does happen. It is it is somewhat common. Well, Liz Brunick, stand by for a moment because we'll talk more when we come back about why it's happening, what states are trying to do, and that seeming conflict regarding American attitudes uh, about the death penalty. So more in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. 
So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Liz Brunig is with us today. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic. And Liz, from your reporting... um, I'm wondering if you could help us understand a little bit more about why these uh, executions by lethal injection are going wrong. So specifically, tell us about what you discovered regarding what happened to Joe Nathan James Jr. Liz, are you, Liz, are you there? Looks like we are going to work to get the Liz Brunig back on the line. So while we do that, let me turn now to Robert Blecker. He's a professor emeritus at the New York Law School and author of The Death of Punishment, Searching for Justice Among the Worst of the Worst. And he's also recently wrote, uh, written an, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times titled, If Not the Parkland Shooter, Who is the Death Penalty For? Professor Blecker, welcome to On Point. Thank you. Hello, Megan. So we're going to get back to Liz Brunig, uh, Brunig and her reporting specifically on what's going wrong with um, attempts to uh, execute prisoners via lethal injection. But let's switch gears here for a second, because what's compelling to me is while there are all of these concerns about the, uh, the, the metting out of the death penalty, we still seem to have some evidence that there is continued support uh, amongst the American people when they're asked about do they support the death penalty or not. I think one of the more recent surveys says about 60 percent. So how do you read that? Well, as you said earlier, it, it, it depends upon how you ask the question. The, the poll question is faulty as a measuring device. It's faulty in, as a moral measuring device. It, it fundamentally distorts public opinion. Since, I think, 1937, the Gallup poll and now the leading poll, the Pew poll, asks the same question. The question is, do you support the death penalty for someone convicted of murder? Well, I gave up tenure as a law professor. I surrendered a guaranteed income in one of the world's great jobs to keep my promise to a number of convicted murderers to amplify their voices. I spent thousands of hours inside maximum security prisons and on death rows probing their lives, probing their attitudes. And I know now, without any doubt, that circumstances conspired to produce murder and murderers who still have years later after prison much to offer us, who are vital, vibrant, smart, compassionate, wise, with a refined sense of justice. I've probed their lives. So, I mean, I sound now like an opponent of the death penalty, and yet I'm not. I mean, after decades documenting that daily life, I'm convinced to a moral certainty that the majority of those who committed and stand convicted of murder do not deserve to die. And yet, and yet, I also feel morally convinced, along with 60% of Americans, that some people do deserve to die, that they're so evil, they're so heinous, they're so despicable, they're so, so cruel. So the only right answer to the question as asked, do you support the death penalty for someone convicted of murder, is it depends. Mm-hmm. But if forced to answer yes or no to that question, or do you generally support the death penalty for someone convicted of murder, I guess it has to be no. And yet, again, the worst of the worst of the worst I'm convinced, and it's irrelevant what I'm convinced of, a majority of Americans, a majority of the world, by the way, an overwhelming majority, is convinced that the worst of the worst of the worst really have forfeited their right to live, really do deserve to die. And that's why you get the support. Not because of deterrence. I mean, the same studies that you're citing, the study, the Pew study, uh, 
indicates not only that a majority thinks that we risk executing the innocent, but that deterrence is not a major issue for them, that it does not effectively deter. Of course, that's not really the question. The question is not, does the death penalty deter? Because, of course, it does, but not perfectly. But so does life without parole, and not perfectly. The question is, does it have a marginally better, more effective deterrent effect than its principal alternative, life without parole? Hmm. For those of us who seek justice, that's irrelevant. Because if we use deterrence as the basis for supporting the death penalty, and happily fewer and fewer Americans do these days, then we're, we're signing on to using a person as a means to our own ends. We're engaging in a cost-benefit analysis and we're saying kill X so that Y doesn't do something else in the future. And, and that's not moral. I mean, right. Immanuel Kant was the best to say that. So it's not deterrence. It's ultimately justice and desert. And the American public has the in developed intuitive sense, and it's mostly right, but not entirely right, that they can isolate and identify first through their legislatures, then through their juries, then through their judges on appellate review, that they can isolate and identify who are these worst of the worst of the mm. worst. Okay. So, so that... In, in, that is really kind of one of the central questions here about how to identify um, and if there is agreement th thereupon. Uh, we're kind of, I'm kind of like juggling a couple of little balls here, though, because due to those technical difficulties, um, we had lost Liz Brunig um, at a critical time when I wanted to hear more about why amongst those people who have been given the death penalty, states seem to be increasingly uh, incapable of humanely carrying out that punishment. So I want to turn back to that now just for a few minutes because I don't want to lose that thread. So Professor uh, Blecker, just hang on here for a moment. Liz sure, Brunig, let's do, talk about lethal injection. Yeah, too. Liz Brunig, do we have you back? Yes, you do. Okay, I'm sorry about those technical troubles, but uh, they still happen on occasion. Um, so can you tell us, I, I was going to ask you about what, what's going wrong during these attempts at lethal injection that lead to the botched executions. And for example, you reported on what happened with Joe Nathan James Jr. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So Joe Nathan James Jr. was executed in the state of Alabama July 28th. It took three hours. He showed no signs of consciousness during his execution. Usually, a person who is being executed has read their death warrant and offered the opportunity for last words. Joe Nathan James reportedly said nothing, and it's unclear if his eyes were even open during this period. The state has never been able to confirm that he was conscious during his execution. This is extremely unusual, and it raised the question of why. Um, and so uh, some uh, folks who were working with me set up a second autopsy, an independent autopsy for Mr. James before he could be buried. Um, and we got a look at his body and what had happened has, it appears to have been, uh, that the state attempted to set lines, set IV lines in his hands, in his foot, in his arms, um, you know, possibly multiple times and failed. This is based on bruising sites seen around the punctures. Um, and then it appears they just started cutting into his arm with a sharp instrument. Um, there are several lacerations that were created by some kind of knife, and it appears they attempted uh, but failed something along the lines of a venous cut down when the arm or part of the body is cut into so that the skin can be pushed back and a vein can be located visibly with the naked eye. That appears to be what has happened to Joe Nathan James. 
Why is that the do we do you know or have you been able to discover why that was the option they went with? Because I would think in the modern age, there are other tools like ultrasound to very accurately locate veins and even in people whose veins are are hard to to see. Absolutely. So ultrasound is the modern standard of care finding vaccine for fine, excuse me, for finding veins. That's what doctors use these days is ultrasound. Um, and so we have no idea what happens inside execution chambers because those folks are all protected by secrecy that's enforced by the state. We don't even know who they are, what their qualifications are to be working back there. Um, but my reporting suggests they're local paramedics. Um, and in that case, you know, they're just not trained to be doing this. And it's more and more common that um, as the death penalty becomes more and more associated with these sort of archaic forms of torture and execution uh, of the past, doctors and medical professionals don't want anything to do with it. So the few doctors and medical professionals who will take on execution work probably are not well trained. Likely they don't have a specialty where they're putting needles in veins every day, uh, or maybe it's been a long time. And perhaps they went to medical school before ultrasound was in common use because you can purchase an ultrasound machine on Amazon. It's not that the Alabama Department of Corrections can't access one. It appears to be that they wouldn't know how to use it. Hmm. Uh, Professor Blecker, let me just turn back to you because you said you also had some thoughts on the the use of lethal injection in people who um, are eventually uh, executed. Go ahead. Well, I too witnessed an execution and it was an execution that had its own problems in locating a vein. So I, I, I have a sense of the experience that Elizabeth has gone through and by the way, written beautifully about, though I disagree with her fundamentally. Um, and my problem with lethal injection is not that it might unnecessarily cause pain, but that it certainly causes confusion. It destroys the distinction between punishment and medicine. Look at how we're talking about medical procedures. Look at the debate. What role should doctors play? Should the pharmaceutical, compa- pharmaceutical companies supply the, the lethal uh, doses of poison? These are people, these are institutions that should be devoted to saving, preserving, and improving life. It's the wrong method of execution. I know there, there, are, there are at least two authorities that Elizabeth um, respects because she cites and quotes them, and so do I, though we disagree ultimately on the question of the death penalty, Deborah Denno and Austin Surratt. Deborah Denno has been a, a, a leading opponent of lethal injection, as am I, and, and she admits that if you had to have the death penalty, that's the wrong method. She wishes we didn't have it. The right method is the firing squad. Austin Surratt has has um, documented all botched executions in a book in a book this century. He has conceded that there has never been a botched firing squad execution. It beats all other conventional methods. It's honest. It's quick. It's painless. It's cheap, and it's certain. So this is a debate that will soon pass, and that actually obscures the deeper and more profoundly difficult questions, not how we execute, 
but whom, if anyone, we should execute. But lethal injection is not it, and as Elizabeth has said in her articles, neither is gas. It conjures up horrors of of the Holocaust, it conjures up horrors of World War One, and also the experience is fundamentally divorced from the notion of punishment. This this um, nitrogen hy- hypoxia. I mean, it's a that's a, a an elevated version of what you get at the dentist's office, uh, which sort of gives you a high. Uh, if they give you a lethal dose of it, you will die going yeah. out on a high. This is all. This is all unrelated to what the essential question should be, and it's a question of punishment, whether it's deserved. So this is a debate and a discussion about lethal injection. That will pass. It's relatively trivial compared to the essential question, which is, should we execute people? Can we trust the state to do it right? Can we identify Mm. those who deserve it? Well, so so can we trust the state to do it right? Clearly, via lethal injection, there are many uh, indications that that we cannot. But regarding uh, Alabama and a couple of other states um, who are considering or at least have passed legislation to use nitrogen hypoxia, which, uh, again, I learned through Liz's reporting, to the question of punishment, I would say the extinguishing of the life is a punishment, even if it's supposedly painless. But, but Liz, I just want to give you a chance to, uh, to, to respond to, to much of which uh, uh, Professor Blecker has said. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I agree that we can't seem to carry out lethal injections correctly and that it was probably always a fool's errand. And nitrogen hypoxia, um, <clears throat> currently the state of Alabama has a petition for cert before the Supreme Court where they're asking more or less uh, for the Supreme Court to say that it doesn't matter that they have nitrogen hypoxia even listed as an alternative, um, that no execution should be delayed just because people opted in to their statutory um offering of nitrogen hypoxia. Uh, They want to be able to go right back to lethally injecting even after these three botched executions, and they want the Supreme Court's help in that. Um, This suggests to me that nitrogen hypoxia is nowhere near being completed, although the Alabama Department of Corrections lawyers have told judges before that they're weeks from completion. Uh, This was months in the past. So it looks like there really is no nitrogen hypoxia protocol on the horizon. Actually, they want Kenny Smith to provide one if he wishes to be executed that way. Um, So they're actually asking the individual how to kill him. Um, You know, this is part of Eighth Amendment death penalty jurisprudence at this point, this expectation that inmates come up with their own protocols and execution methods. And this is just really a sign of how weak the death penalty is, that so many methods have become tangled up in these legal, these legal challenges uh, regarding an individual's constitutional rights. And, you know, fundamentally, I think the issue is, you know, we're a country that says that people have inalienable human rights, but we also kill them occasionally. And there's no way to kill someone while respecting their inalienable human rights or even their constitutional rights, which is why there are so many capital cases that wind up uh, before the Supreme Court or in the highest courts of the country on uh, challenges of Eighth Amendment violations, cruel and unusual punishment violations. Because, you know, everyone who knows someone who has been sentenced to death, and I know several, realizes that the the actual punishment of, of this of this penalty is the torture of having to live with knowing that your life is about to end at any time. Mm. Um, well, there's no tomorrow. We, yeah. Uh, yeah. Professor Blecker, I hear you uh, wanted to get in there. Go ahead. Yes, I do. In a couple of respects. Um, Number one, notice there was no response about the firing squad as a certain, swift, painless 
uh, method of execution. Number two, it's just not true uh, about what life is like on death row. I've spent uh, hundreds of hours on death rows documenting life there. I mean, th there are serial um, sadistic killers uh, like Danny Rawling, who was finally executed in Florida, uh, who, who's playing volleyball on death row, who's watching first-run movies. And it's not true that you never know whether your life is going to end in a moment because the appeals delay it endlessly. The, 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 the real question is not w whether you live or die, but how you live un, un, until you die. And one last thing I would say, which is that, uh, as I said, I witnessed, I witnessed an execution. By the way, I did get to see... Uh, the personnel who administered it. I got to interview some of them and I wandered into the execution chamber not knowing that the actual guy who pushes the plunger would be in there. But I saw that scene and I also saw my father-in-law die in a hospice. And what made me shudder was how similar those scenes were. In both cases, the person who was dying was wrapped and swathed in, 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 in a sheet with an IV coming out of his, line, uh, out of his arm, um, attended by several people. And it, it, the scenes so eerily resembled each other, they shouldn't at all. So again, we can do it certainly, we can do it painlessly. The question really is, should we do it at all? But we know so, how to do it. So we did set up um, a firing squad protocol quite recently, last year, I believe, in South Carolina. Um, I know how that protocol was created, and um, I would love to report on it. I, I can't wait to do that one day. Um, but remember that states who want to set up a firing squad have to figure out how to do it. They have to figure out how they're going to keep the inmates still, what kind of gun they're going to use, where they're going to get it, who's going to pull the trigger, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, after South Carolina set up their firing squad protocol, they backed out. They didn't carry it out. They didn't execute anyone by firing squad. They weren't able to pull it off. Liz Brunig joins us today. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and Robert Blecker is with us as well. He's a professor emeritus at New York Law School. We'll discuss more when we come back. This is On Point. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're joined today by Robert Blecker. He's Professor Emeritus at New York Law School, author of The Death of Punishment, Searching for Justice Among the Worst of the Worst. Also, a recent uh, op-ed in The New York Times headlined, If Not the Parkland Shooter, Who is the Death Penalty For? And he's also author of Voices from the Inside, a stage play and podcast drawn from the thousands of hours he spent with convicted criminals inside Lorton, the nation's first and only all black prison system. I'm also joined today by Elizabeth Brunig. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic who has reported extensively on the death penalty in the United States, including A History of Violence, Why Does Alabama Keep Botching Executions? And Alabama Makes Plans to Gas Its Prisoners. Now, um, uh, Liz, a little earlier in the show, I had uh, asked uh, Professor 
Blecker to tell us what he thinks about seemingly conflicting attitudes Americans have about the death penalty. And I want to just demonstrate that in just responses that we got from our own listeners when we said we were going to do this hour. So first of all, here's Timbo uh, from Santa Cruz, California. You know, it's vengeance. Feels justified because it goes through the criminal justice system. It's revenge in a way, and it's wrong. You know, it just stems from us in America just being a very, very violent society. Violence permeates videos, the movies, television, books, everywhere. And I think people have become numb to it, especially in a country where, you know, we claim to be for life. Uh, We are taking lives away and sometimes innocent life. So it's just wrong. That's Timbo from Santa Cruz, California. And here's Sam from Detroit, Michigan. When the individuals commit heinous crimes and are proven guilty without a shadow of a doubt, be it witnesses, DNA, I can't help to think that if somebody harmed, killed my family, then people deserve the death penalty. I think we are wired to think that way. So just a couple of views there from some On Point listeners who, by the way, used our On Point Vox Pop app. Now, Liz, I have to say, I'm not quite sure how to read what polling data says, because it was what back in, I think, 2019 that uh, Gallup put out a report that saying for the first time in their 30 plus year history of asking this question, a majority of Americans said that life imprisonment, life in prison with no possibility of parole was a better punishment for murder than the death penalty. That was a 60 to 36 percent advantage there. That's 2019 from Gallup. And then as we've been talking about this recent Pew poll kind of found the exact opposite. The question was, when someone commits a crime like murder, the death penalty is morally justified. 64% of people said yes. So how do you understand what American attitudes are about the death penalty? I think all people are prone to having conflicting feelings about the death penalty, precisely because of what of your what one of your callers pointed out. If it were my family, I would feel all sorts of crazy things. I would have all kinds of intense emotions. Um, and uh, I mean, again, I my sister in law was murdered in 2016, um, so I'm aware of what some of those emotions might be when your family member uh, is killed. Um, I know how people would feel. Um, And it's true that your principles and your morality and other parts of your personality and so forth just sort of leave you in a devastating loss. And I completely sympathize with that and um, totally understand why victims' families, especially in some cases, though not all, um, feel like death is, you know, the the correct sort of elemental response here. Um, On the other hand, you have people considering stuff that your first caller was pointing out, the fact that often, not often, but sometimes innocent people are executed. We have records of innocent people, DNA, posthumous DNA exonerations, um, which means innocent people are occasionally put to death. Um, The process fails. The process is arbitrary to begin with. They don't even have the death penalty in about half of states, which means that whether or not you get death in the United States doesn't really have to do with the crime you committed, just has to do with where you were. Um, and whether the local prosecutor has the resources to defend a capital sentence. Mm. So that then brings us back to what actually Professor Blecker said, which is the question of uh, 
should the death penalty be reserved for what he called the worst, the absolute worst of the worst? Liz, what do you think about that? I think we can only know the absolute worst criminals in retrospect. So we would sort of have to wait for human history to end, wrap it up, and then name a list of like the top 100 people who needed to die. Um, Because only then could we compare all the crimes and see which ones were really the worst of the worst. Um, Second, I just I would emphasize again, it doesn't really have to do with the type of crime you committed because you can commit that crime in a certain state and not get death and commit that crime just 10 miles over the state line and get death. Um, So this is really not about who commits the worst crime. The people who get death are not Americans who commit the worst crimes necessarily. They're Americans who are in areas where prosecutors want to hand down capital sentences and have the resources to defend them, like in Harris County, where Houston is in Texas. In more rural areas, oftentimes prosecutors just don't have the resources to defend a years long capital sentence and they just won't get involved. They just give down. They give LWAP. Juries like it. It's reversible. Uh, you can always let the guy out if it turns out he was innocent. Um, and, and you know, in the more fundamental question, I, I just I don't believe in, in killing. I don't believe in taking human life unless there's absolutely no other way possible to keep people safe. Mm. Well, um, can I just ask you a quick question, though, because it seemed to me that uh, Professor Blecker was saying that um, there is maybe not absolute agreement, but it, it's hard to argue against uh, the fact that. It's hard to argue against the idea that many people might consider a mass shooter amongst the worst of the worst or someone who murders a child as amongst the worst of the worst. I mean, I don't think we really need to wait for 100 years and look back and and write a list. Are are you saying that that you don't think there's even agreement right now amongst who are like the the most irredeemable murderers um, in the country? Of course there's not. Uh, Nicholas Cruz did not, in fact, receive a death sentence because there was a non-unanimous jury. Um, And so where someone sees the absolute worst of the worst, the most sadistic, heinous, inhuman killer, another person says, yes, that's correct. They have real serious problems. They're inhuman and sadistic. There's something wrong with them. There is a problem there. They never had a chance. And that seems to be what the jurors determined who voted against death in Nicholas Cruz's case. But there's a huge amount of conflicting feeling about this in the United States because people have conflicting feelings about mental and emotional health and what role those should play in mitigation. But obviously, some jurors were persuaded even in Nicholas Cruz's case. Mm. Well, um, actually, on that point, and, and Professor, uh, I'm going to get to you in just a second. Please. But I, yeah, I'm but I just wanted respond. to, I mean, I just wanted to, I mean, she, Liz mentioned um, Nicholas Cruz, and he's the, the shooter in the, the Parkland school shooting. Um, and so, uh, it, as, as Liz accurately pointed out, three of the 12 jurors in that case, three of the 12 voted not to sentence Cruz to death. Now, under Florida law, a unanimous decision is required for the death penalty. And one of the victim's fathers, uh, Fred Gutenberg, whose 14-year-old daughter Jamie was murdered by Cruz, said he was stunned and devastated by the verdict. He should have received the death sentence today. There was no mercy for a murder that was planned over a long period of time. And that was sadly, as proven by the state, executed. I don't know how this jury came to the conclusions that they did today, but 17 families did not receive justice. Professor Blecker, go ahead. Yes, I'd like to respond to several things. First, as to your two callers, one uh, uh, one of whom identified it, this whole uh, issue as vengeance uh, 
or revenge. There's a great difference between revenge and retribution. Revenge is limitless and it need not be proportional or appropriately directed. The death penalty as a form of retribution is limited and directed and proportional. Uh, Second is that there's a hint of hypocrisy, the accusation of hypocrisy. Uh, We say we're for life and yet we take lives away. Well, we say we're for liberty and yet we take liberty away from kidnappers. This is all part of a a, a deeper wellspring of uh, a moral intuition that all other things equal, uh, a like-kind response is often the most appropriate response. But to the main question of whether we can identify them in advance or as you, whether we have to wait till the end of time, no, of course we can identify them in advance. The Parkland shooter... Um, Elizabeth is correct, of course, uh, did not get a unanimous jury, but it did get a consensus. It did get 9-3, and the original jury vote was 11-1 for death. If we look at the Boston Marathon bombing, that did get a unanimous jury verdict. And it's, it's, if we're looking to identify what evil is, Aristotle was right. Evil exists at the extremes. Uh, at the one extreme, it's, it's sadism. It's selfish cruelty. It's the sadistic serial killer. It's the one who rapes and murders and mutilates children. At the other extreme, it's the cold and callous and cruel, the depraved and wanton killer, like the Parkland killer. Uh, I, I interviewed some spray shooters and that is guys who would go by a corner and take an, a, an M16 and just spray. And I asked them, do you ever think about the fact that you'd be killing innocent people whose sisters and mothers and brothers and, and, and friends would be grieving? And in both cases, these were separate interviews. The answer was no. I said, well, why don't you give it some thought? And there was a moment of silence where the love between us was palpable and I was seething inside. And the response of one of them was SOL. And the response of the other one was, they shouldn't have gotten in the way of my bullet. It's that callousness. It's that wantonness. It's the, it's the sadistic torturer. It's ones who betray trust, like the reverend who hires someone to kill his wife to get yeah. to the life insurance policy. It's the one who preys on vulnerable victims. It's the one like the Boston Marathon bomber. Who, who attacks the entire community and places the bomb at the feet of an eight-year-old. And in the Parkland situation, he watched videos in advance of how school shooters got away with it, calculated the amount of time it would take for the police to come in, killed 17, went back to murder the wounded, wore a T-shirt that he knew commonly was worn by students so he could melt into the crowd to escape. You don't need to wait to the end of time to find out who the worst of the worst of the worst. These polls reflect the moral intuition of the majority of Americans, of the majority of the world, uh, that some people are so bad. Okay, so yeah, let me just, I'm only, I'm stepping in here because I want to give Liz definitely a chance to respond and also we're rapidly running out of time. Uh, Liz, so uh, you can respond to any aspect of what uh, Professor Blecker has said, um, but I'm also interested in hearing more from you about something that you pointed out regarding um, the inconsistencies in basically what you, you see is that that moral judgment from from state to state because I just want to hear more from you on that as well sure so I mean I don't take the Aristotelian line on evil I take the Augustinian line on evil I think it's a privation that's something missing there's a failure of something that needed to be there and 
you know, I've interviewed a lot of murderers too. And some of them I talk to every day, just as a matter of course. Um, some of them will uh, come off as fairly unrepentant. A lot of them just don't want to talk about their prior offenses. Um, but a lot of them are reflective. They have periods on death row where they have a lot of time to consider what they've done and they're repentant. When I talked to Kenny Smith shortly before his execution, he was talking about his remorse. Um, and so I I don't know if, if it's the case that they're really all so, um, you know, uh, unyielding. I think that if they're being interviewed and they can sense that there's uh, something combative going on, they tend to uh, puff up and be very aggressive and proud of their criminal history. But um, when you talk to these guys one-on-one -on -one and you're understanding or at least open to it, I mean, I think their defense attorneys will tell you they see a side of them that other people don't. But again, there's huge variation there. The more evil someone is, the more screwed up their desires, the more impossible it is to understand why they want what they want, the more inclined I am to say there's just something really badly wrong with them. You can describe that as evil or you can describe someone becoming evil as a process of deterioration, which they may or may not have full control over. I mean, you can think about that however you want to think about it. But I just begin to think I'm killing someone who has a severe problem when I could just be keeping this person from causing harm. And I think that realization is why state to state, some states just don't have the death penalty whatsoever. So some death sentences get handed down just because someone happened to be, for instance, on federal land in a state without the death penalty, just happened to be 10 miles up this road rather than a different road. Therefore, they're given the federal death penalty for whatever crime they commit. This happened to Alfred Bourgeois. Um, but in a in a state that doesn't have the death penalty at all, you still sentence criminals who do the worst of the worst, and they seem satisfied with the justice that those criminals receive, which is usually some form of a long prison sentence, life without parole. And in the United States, our prison sentences are among the longest in the world, so it's not as though people are getting off scot-free. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a real problem for people who think that the death penalty is not only permitted but required by certain crimes, because in half the states, they're not doing it. And in the other half, prosecutors have prosecutorial discretion and there's no mm -hmm. way of making sure that they're handing out death sentences per crime. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid to say we only have a minute left here. So, Professor Blecker, I just want to hear what you have to say about, um, you know, that inconsistency of uh, application across from state to state. Yes, it's, it's a function of federalism. Um, the definition, detection, prosecution, and punishment of crime is the most essential state sovereign function we have. In a, a, a country that is a federalist, we are determined to allow diverse communities to reflect different value systems. So to impose a uniform either abolition or a mandatory system of punishment on all the states uniformly would be to violate an, another fundamental constitutional commitment that we make to ourselves, which is that we allow people to vote with their feet, with their feet as to where they'll live, and we hope that their representatives will by and large reflect their value systems. So it's no accident that states like Massachusetts have abolished the death penalty, and states like Texas keep it. But that's part of the diversity that makes America um, great and also that makes America, America, a federal republic. Well, Robert Blecker is a professor emeritus at New York Law School and author of The Death of Punishment, Searching for Justice Amongst the Worst of the Worst. Professor Blecker, thank you for joining us today. 
Thank you for having me. And Elizabeth Brunig, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of A History of Violence, Why Does Alabama Keep Botching Executions? And Alabama Makes Plans to Gas Its Prisoners. We've got links to everyone's writings at our website, onpointradio.org. Liz Brunig, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.